latest case of the largest money laundering was Danske Bank right. that was operating out of Estonia. And nobody was flagging this country or the other Baltic states, maybe outside of Latvia, mm-hmm. as major countries that needed to Im- improve their activities. And so I think we're not always looking for the red flags where we need to be. Welcome back to AML Conversations. In this edition, AML Right Source Vice Chairman John Byrne sits down with Dr. Louise Shelley. Dr. Shelley is the founder and director of the Terrorism Transnational Crime and Corruption Center at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government and the author of several publications. In their conversation earlier this week, they talked about the center, her recent book, Dark Commerce, and the connection that the center has been able to amplify in its research in understanding the links between terrorism, transnational crime, and corruption. Sit back and enjoy AML Conversations. Dr. Shelley, I appreciate you sitting down with me today. And one of the things that you know, the AML community is aware of what's going on here at George Mason in terms of, of the work of your center, but I'm not sure uh, that others are generally as familiar. So can you tell us a little bit about the TRAC uh, program, the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center here at George Mason? How long it's been in existence? What was the thought process? And generally, what's the mission? So TRAC, as we call it, has been at George Mason. This is its 11th year. Previously, it was at American University. So, and that's where you were, right? That's where I was, okay. right? I started it probably close to over 20 years ago. But what's different about track at George Mason is its enormous efforts to do outreach to the policy community, to the academic community on these intersecting issues of terrorism, transnational crime, and corruption. And most people see these issues separately. They stovepipe them. And we've tried to understand where there are interlocking relationships and provide a more holistic view of the approach. And we have research work. We have doctoral students working at the center. We've had 11 books in our book series focusing on on different aspects, primarily of transnational crime, corruption, terrorism. We do monthly events. We started recently trying to make them much more available through reports because as we've gotten more known nationally or even internationally, people can't always be here with us. And the policy community has gotten very interested in the reports that we've done on on money laundering into real estate or how uh, corruption and kleptocracy are related. We're just finishing a a report now of a conference we had in late November on Interpol, um, misuse of Interpol red notices and of Russian and other authoritarian states' interference into our judicial process. What is an Interpol red notice? An Interpol red notice is a request for a country to detain somebody on orders from the country in which the person allegedly committed their crime, and then to start procedures to to extradite that person to the country that has requested them. But unfortunately, in many authoritarian states today, uh, there are trumped up charges, misuse of the justice system, and the number of red notices has increased enormously. So now they're in 
the numbers of tens of thousands and they're not being properly vetted and business people, political activists are being targeted and abused through, through this system. So we were exposing this. And also we talked about Russian interference in the judicial process and had the prosecutor um, who had been part of the Prevazon case talk about Vysilitskaya and the attorney general and how he, um, she was subsequently indicted for involving him and his interference in the legal process. And we presented this about six weeks before the indictment occurred. So we're often ahead of the news curve. Sure. Um, and, I, and I know based on all what you just laid out, I'm going to jump around a little bit. But it seems to me that the, the, the theme, uh, the connecting point is very simple in my view, simplistic, that it's all financial. Like, I would assume in all these spaces, terrorists obviously need funds to act. Uh, obviously, transnational crime organizations and domestic crime organizations are fun, need funds, and certainly corruption is it's all about the f finances. Is it safe to say, uh, like it, it was in Watergate, follow the money? Because I, I can recall sitting and hearing some experts, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Dennis Lormel, as you know very well, always talks about uh, you know tracking the finances through different stages, not just to determine money laundering, but that you can connect various crimes based on that. Is that what you typically find in all of this, besides other things, of course? We, I think what you've just summarized is absolutely key, because going after the money trails is not just to find the money, it's to understand the relationships mm -hmm. and to connect the actors. Right. But sometimes what we're finding is that it's not just criminal actors, but it's also states that are sometimes engaged in this activity. And therefore, money may not be the driving motivation for them. It may have much more political reasons that they're doing it. But looking at the money trails helps understand who's behind it and who's, you know, paying for this activity. The um, money laundered through real estate, and I know you, you've done some work in that space and we talked about it in the planet. You did a program last year that was very well received. One of the things that sort of frustrates the AML professional today, I think, is that there's there's corners of the real estate world where there's no obligations. I mean, it's it's clear to folks that listen listen to my interviews that m my prejudice is I've always felt I felt this way right after 9-11. If you have a financial footprint, you should have some obligation to determine source of funds. I don't care who you are, mm -hmm. right? The real estate industry doesn't seem to have that. It doesn't seem they don't in many cases. What was the major, I know you found a lot of different things in terms of the industry, but if you could encapsulate that for uh, folks listening to today, what's the biggest problem in the real estate industry vis-a-vis -vis, uh, determining financial crime activity? It's the absence of beneficial ownership and not knowing who the buyers are, where the money comes from, and, and therefore you, you can have the biggest crooks in the world, you have, can have criminals, terrorists, um, corrupt heads of state and officials buying property. And siphoning off large amounts of money from their country to the detriment of the citizens. Right. Um, going back to the or original um, mission of track, you obviously talked about things having um, activities external to, to the U.S. So you do research not just for policymakers here, but you do them for policymakers 
uh, outside the United States as well, right? That's Talk a right. Li- little bit about that. Well, for example, uh, in a month's time, I'm going to the OECD, which is the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is an organization of approximately 40 of the most economically advanced states, and they have a working group on illicit trade. So I'm going to talk to them. Today, I just had an invitation to go talk to the Bundestag in Germany in early May and talk to them about cybercrime and the problems of how much of illicit trade has transferred into the cyber world. I've done, in the past, I've talked to the uh, Italian Senate, uh, the House of Lords. So I've had a lot of chance to talk to um, international audiences, not only in in Europe, but I've addressed them in, in Latin America and Africa and Asia. So there's an enormous interest in these issues worldwide and a large international network of specialists that we connect to and get advice from and insights, which helps make all our work better. And we have students coming from all over the world to work with us and postdocs. I assume you've been um, involved in some degree with uh, committees and projects with FATF. Not really. Really? That, not, not they, I don't them. know why they don't tap you folks. That's crazy. No, they haven't. Yeah. Uh, that's something that we need to change. <laughs> and there's a number of us that do some work with FATF that uh, well, you are obviously very familiar with how they operate. Yes. Uh, I interviewed the former executive uh, secretary, Rick McDonald, last year for this podcast. And Rick is now in private private practice. But, you know, given the elevation of that organization because of mutual evaluations and trying to understand whether or not a country sort of gets it, mm-hmm. I would just think the information you guys are able to put together would be invaluable. So that's something we need to change. I think that it could be very useful because I think one of the things the track has done has had a built a reputation for being how do I say, nonpartisan, mm-hmm. non, you know, very realistic, not out to get people, not playing politics, mm-hmm. and very able to reach across the world and build bridges with people. So so that leads me to something that I know FATF grapples with, and some of us on the outside that perhaps are cynical will look at an evaluation and wonder, is that valuation of their AML regime really really fair uh, for, for whatever reason. And, um, you know, the hope is that it is because I, I know the group, I know a lot of the individuals that, that are charged with going to these other countries and looking at their laws and regulations. But having said all that, what's your general view on some of these countries outside the United States that maybe seek your input or don't seek your input? Does it seem like most countries are trying to get there, that are trying to improve their infrastructure, or does it really depend? And the countries that we might suspect as being maybe not really sincere are probably accurate. So being nonpartisan as you are, uh, I'm not asking you to name countries, but do you get the sense that some of these countries are definitely all in on improvement, others not so much? I think there's an enormous variation. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes... We say very negative things about some countries, right? I've worked a lot in the former Soviet Union mm-hmm. and that, you know, Moldova and Azerbaijan are money laundering machines and they show up in many of the criminal cases and the illicit trade that I study. But the latest case of the largest money laundering 
was Danske Bank right. that was opposite, operating out of Estonia. And nobody was flagging this country or the other Baltic states, maybe outside of Latvia, mm -hmm. as major countries that needed to Im improve their activities. And so I think we're not always looking for the red flags where we need to be. That's a good point, because I have heard for a long time that Latvia was problematic, although I've met professionals from there that would come to the United States uh, for meetings to seek information. So, you know, it's hard to figure out, but you're, that's a perfect, perfect example. Plus the, the other part of this, not to get too far afield, you know, we have in the United States high density drug trafficking areas, mm -hmm. uh, Hifkas and Haidas and all that, that everybody's well, well familiar with. Um, recently, I've talked to some folks in the government who've said, you know what, um, we'll, we'll add a, a Hifka or Haida just because we have staff there, not necessarily because of data. So there's a lot of instances where maybe the information isn't as useful as could be. And that's where your seems to me that your organization, the, the university can come into play because you can dispassionately look and say, not on that particular issue, but just in general and say, here's where there can be some improvements based on our data. And here's perhaps... Uh, where it is more successful than you would you would imagine, right? And also where a community brings certain skill sets to mm -hmm. it. For example, I was in Houston last week, and they are one of the most active communities against working against human trafficking. Mm -hmm. So while our focus in Northern Virginia with our with our strong, you know, anti financial crime networks. Uh, puts a lot of emphasis on finding and following the money. We've got an emphasis on gangs because we've got gang groups, so we find gang-related human trafficking. Houston is one of the world's medical centers. So they're not fo following the money as much, but they're following the, the victimization through the hospitals and working with medical personnel. So you don't necessarily get the same comparability because the character of the community affects the way they go after the problem. That's a great point. One of the um, things that I've seen with the ACAMS membership, which I obviously still a part of, is when we decided, not decided, it was our members that came to us and said, maybe you could help um, organizing some uh, roundtables and meetings with law enforcement and bankers to determine do we have enough information uh, to look for um, financial indicators that could show human trafficking? And uh, that was that was driven from the from the bottom up, basically. Bankers saying we want to improve our communities, um, and, and th that started to occur, continues to occur. But to your point, I'm, I'm now more familiar and realize that these other industries, from a non financial standpoint, can also. Uh, be relevant in anti-trafficking. You just mentioned the medical community. We, we talked before we got on to the interview about transportation, and taxis and Lyft and Uber and places like that, where perhaps the data that they have could be useful. So it sounds to me like um, the, the things that you, you folks can provide, continue to provide, is data from all these various industries to to improve not just what a financial institution can do, but what other parts of the private sector can, can do. do. And I think there, there are also parts of citizens as consumers can do of demanding that they know more about the corporate supply chains, that they ask companies in which they're shareholders to be much more responsible and transparent about their supply chains. So that's one of the ways that I think one needs to 
approach this problem is there's an important role for professionals like ACAMs and people who have this expertise. But they're met, since human trafficking touches so many different aspects of our society, labor, payment systems, transport, there are even religious figures have, you know, sometimes are called in. There was one fascinating story in Iowa of a minister who was providing counsel to trafficking victims at a truck stop. And he got very energized on this issue because the owners of the truck stop were finding that it was lucrative to have this trafficking going on. And so they were they chased away the minister. Hmm. So there are many ways that also faith-based communities can take part and help become involved in this issue. And then he went out to talk about this and how we need to be much more demanding of the of the transport sector and the facilitators of this. So there's not one sector that needs to assume responsibility. Now, I'm going to talk about your most recent book in a moment, but you did uh, do a book on human trafficking that's of, it's a few years old. Is uh, I assume that it covered these sorts of things. Is there a thought of updating that? Uh, can people still get access to it? Tell us about right. that, pu so that publication. So this human trafficking book, it's called Human Trafficking, A Global Perspective, is a decade old. Oh, and I am that, teaching okay. human trafficking now. Wow. And one of the class exercises is what do what needs to be done to revise this book? So they all come in now. They started last week. Excellent. And telling me this needs to go, this needs to be revised. It's a it's a wonderful uh, teaching activity. And okay. I've already spoken to the editor because the book has sold 8,500 copies right. already, and there's a huge secondary market in it. So it's still being used a lot, but a lot of it is out of date mm -hmm. because we didn't have sort of the massive movements across the Mediterranean and out of the Middle East. We didn't have so much cyber and tech involvement over a decade ago. And so we didn't have as, we also didn't have the involvement of the financial community that you're talking about. On, on any kind no, of, of significant not. scale at no. that time. So there are many more strategies and solutions and much more engagement, not only in the U.S., but elsewhere on this issue. And that's what I've got to capture. That sounds great. And um, I can guarantee you that you'll go over 8,500 with the next edition because of the financial sector, because the they are just clamoring for more information on what to do. I mean, what I've found is in addition to sort of national task forces, when I go to local banking organizations in different regions, they already have their own local groups that deal with tra trafficking at the local level. And so I, I think this is just a perfect time to make those adjustments and changes. So the thing, I, the piece I just finished with one of our postdocs here is based on an analysis of gang prosecutions in Northern Virginia, which represent over half the prosecutions in this in this region. And what you find out is that if you're comparing Hispanic gangs and, and black gangs, they have very different types of supply chains. So that the the, the Afro-American gangs are much more tech savvy. And being tech savvy, they are able to reach a larger customer base. Hmm. And reaching a larger customer base they can generate more revenues. But every aspect of their business is using technology and social media. 
what seems to be happening, and I, I love some more comparative data, is that the Hispanic gangs that are here are more technologically savvy because Northern Virginia, this region, is so tech savvy than they are in other parts of the country. But many of their customers do not have as much access to online um, advertisements and information. And so they're still highly reliant on sort of ads and distributing cards. And so the whole supply chain is not as, as, as tech uh, as tech-related, as tech-dependent, and that generates lower revenues and stays much more within an isolated community. Wow. So there's not even within this, you know, within a few miles of where we're talking right. are very different business models of human trafficking operating simultaneously with different profit margins, different um, funding streams, Wow. And the American money uh, of the, I mean, of the American-based gangs that are totally in the U.S. tend to dissipate most of their money, while the Hispanic gangs send some of the money back to Central America. So some of it is is totally domestic, and some of it is transnational. Interesting. Now, so you've just um, had published uh, a uh, a book called Dark Commerce, and I know you've done a bunch of presentations on this. Um, and it covers a whole host of areas of illegal activity. Give us a snapshot of what you were trying to accomplish with the book, and then we'll I'll ask you about a few of the different areas in it. All right. So when I started the book, I thought I was going to focus primarily on the different areas of dark commerce. But as I got into it, what became absolutely fascinating to me is how in the last 30 years, I was observing a fundamental transformation of the way illicit trade and, and dark commerce operate. Yesterday, last night, I belonged to a, a, a rug, rug and textile society, and I was giving a talk on the illicit trade in textiles. Hmm. Because if you think about what was the most valuable commodity in the world a few before 200 years ago, right. it was clothing. Right. It, and it was the, the Silk Road, not the Silk Road on the dark net, right, right. but the real Silk Road that we had, you know, crossing from China into Europe. We had pirates working and trying to uh, catch dyes that had enormous market value. And so what we're seeing is a, a tremendous transformation in the last 200 years of what illicit trade is. Because we didn't have a drug trade 200 years ago. We didn't have human trafficking because we had legalized slavery. So there wasn't, there wasn't really a large illegal market in this. And, and we had a lot of illicit trade in, in counterfeits, in textiles, in cigarettes, in alcohol. And as I went back to this, I was trying to show this enormous transformation that has occurred in 30 years where illicit trade has gone online, is now impersonal. People in the most advanced stages of it are not even dealing in tangible commodities. They're trading botnets and ransomware and Trojans, mm -hmm. and they're not paying with currency or gold and silver. They're paying in cryptocurrencies. And this transformation that is so dramatic and so impersonalized 
is about 30 years old. And yet you find the first references to illicit trade in Hammurabi's code 4,000 years ago. <laughs> and I start off the book with talking about e-fencing and how in the old days in Hammurabi's code, if you had a stolen object, you had to know a fence and you took it to them and, and you could be executed for, for dealing in stolen property, but it was a, re a relatively small scale business. And now that we have e-fencing, uh, where people are getting many people to steal stolen property, and then they're putting it online, you can have revenues in the millions of dollars a year. So this is the transformation of, of a, you know, we talk about prostitution being one of the oldest businesses, but, but so is fencing of stolen goods. And it and, and human trafficking have both gone online. And what's also interesting in this history is that you were asking me, is it all about money? And it hasn't been ever all about money. Marauders used to hit the Silk Road as it was transporting the textiles because certain ruling officials along the road wanted to undermine trade. They wanted to undermine the profits of their rivals. They could take what they stole and use it as a, as a system to give out to their patron, you know, their clients. So it's always had a political as well as an economic rationale. Did you find in your research, um, you know, given that I'm surprised it's been 30 years, it seems to me it's been a lot more recent than that. But even even with that, that one of the difficulties is to try to prevent and detect is the lack of skill is probably the wrong word, but for lack of a better term, the skill set of law enforcement and others to combat this? Because you always hear the law enforcement folks that are that we all work with talk about these issues that they're trying to get their arms around, whether it's crypto or something else, but admit that they have a lot of catching up to do. Is that what you've found as well? I mean, if you're thinking about American law enforcement having to do catch up, and one of the largest, most recent cases that was brought down, which was called Avalanche, there were affected commu computers in 192 countries. Mm. And most of those law enforcement have absolutely no computer forensic skills. Right. They don't know what the dark net is. They don't understand anything. And they don't have the resources to do the rapid type of data processing they need to pursue these criminals. So we're really looking at a, a very asymmetric situation where the criminals are enormous beneficiaries of the decline of borders, the rise of, of cyberspace, mm -hmm. and yet law enforcement is still bound by tangible borders. And is some of that legal uh, binding, meaning uh, you know, jurisdictional uh, restrictions? I'm, I'm assuming if you're in all those countries and committing these illegal acts, the criminals don't care. But obviously, law enforcement has to sort of abide by their jurisdictional uh, regulations and others. So in part, is it just because of the nature of the world that we are, you know, all these countries with different laws and regulations that it becomes really difficult to attack this. It's also not just it's re laws and regulations. It's lack of communication mm -hmm. among law enforcement in different countries. For example, one of the key actors in this avalanche case was in a small or secondary city in Ukraine. 
and the law enforcement came to arrest him, and it turned out that he had a regular arsenal in his apartment that he was shooting at them. They managed to detain him. They took him to court. He must have paid off the judge. Within 24 hours, he was out and has never been seen again. Mm-hmm. So this is the the kind of problems that you're having where it's not just technical expertise, it's not just laws, but also it's endemic problems of corruption. So we want folks to read the book. So in addition to the historical view and where we are today, do you do you make some attempt through your, your own views and with experts, I won't say how to solve it because things to suggest that seems a, a bit hyper. Uh, we haven't whatever. figured out how to solve this in 4,000 years. So right, we're not exactly. solve it now. But recommendations. Oh, boy. Absolutely, right? Yes. I started writing the concluding chapter, which I thought would be relatively short. Mm-hmm. Well, when I finished the first sort of summing up, that became its own chapter. And then I wrote another, you know, in um, TypeScript of about 45 pages of what can be done about this problem. And there's just a lot that can be done. And some of it are the kinds of things that we are talking about of when you have civil society, where you have professional communities like you're part of, working with government, working with NGOs, getting ideas of where the problems are by reading journal, you know, good journalistic investigations. All of these segments of society need to work together. And we tend to, in the U.S., talk about an all-of-government strategy, and I talk about an all-of-society strategy. But it can start with, you know, things on a very simple level. For example, there was over-lobster fishing off of Maine, and the community was worried that they would lose their livelihood. So they started setting up their own policing system to make sure that they didn't, that their fellow lobstermen didn't take out too large or too small ones that wouldn't grow. And therefore, the lobster began to flourish with the community enforcing the norms. Or one of the other examples I talk about on the lowest level is that there's an enormous growth of the problem of illegal pesticides in India. And these are not just unregulated pesticides. These are actually harmful pesticides that will kill the soil, kill everything you grow. And they represent about one third of the pesticides now being bought in in India. But what can you do? I mean, people are forming agricultural co-ops where more educated members of the community who can read and can vet the products are doing this and buying for, for the members of their community. So it's a more sophisticated approach on a local level. And then it goes up from there to some of the things we're talking about of sophisticated financial data mining and combining analysts and private sector and groups to help approach this and working a lot with the corporate world. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And we could go off in a lot of different directions based on what you just said. I don't disagree at all that not every answer is a government answer. I mean, we've seen you know, even good faith attempts by governments to control things in a good way run a run afoul of sort of operational and other issues. But it just led me to one issue that um, 
that I we we chatted about uh, briefly, and I, I've done a separate program on this. The um, stolen art, the uh, theft of antiquities, and how that's become. It's always been there, but at least in the AML world, we're starting to hear more about it because most of us knew it was there. We didn't know much about it. But the reason I raised this is um, we're putting together some task forces to try to address this. But the very first time we had a, an event on this, um, we heard from people that had recommended that art dealers be required under the Bank Secrecy Act to report suspicious activity. And you would have thought we were taking away not only their livelihood, but that this was, you know, the end of civilization as we knew it. I'm being a little facetious, but I thought it was interesting that the first reaction from the private sector was, that private sector was, uh, we're not banks, we shouldn't have these obligations, um, you know, it's not that big a problem. Sort of the same thing we heard from banks, frankly, in the 80s, because I was there and I remember. Um, but to your point, if you have all the lobster folks get together and say, let's figure this out together, that's great. But in the art world, what I've seen is there's been some uh, private sector best practices that seem decent, but it only goes so far. So a long-winded way of saying that sometimes you can, if you communicate carefully and you have the data, perhaps people say, if we're going to clean up our, our community, we're going to do this. Sometimes, though, you need to push them a little bit, right? You need to say, you know what? We're going to have to put a requirement in place because it's clear you're not going to do everything you say you're going to do. So I know there's a lot to unpack there, but my point is I don't disagree with you that if people have a common goal, they can figure it out. They don't need the government to necessarily do that. But in some cases, you kind of do because you're not going to be able to get people to say, all right, we're going to do a little bit more than we've done before um, because they think it's going to impact their livelihood. I don't know if that makes well, sense. I think antiquities, like the art market, is one that has, unfortunately, a lot of shady practices in it. Right. And I, there's one art dealer I, I know in London who had once had an office in Japan and he described the delivery of a very expensive painting in which the person, you know, came in a black car with tinted windows and they rolled it down a little to take a painting. I mean, this clearly was right. a, a Yakuza buying high-end art as a way of laundering money. Right. And after that, he became a, a leader in the, in the London art market of trying to impose higher standards on the community once he understood mm -hmm. where the dark side was going. But unfortunately, this has always been an area in which there are a relatively small number of sales, and they're high-end sales. Mm -hmm. And therefore, people, if they question these sales, may lose the business that keeps them solvent. And therefore, they're not dealing in... in um, a lot of, you know, they're not selling washing machines mm -hmm. where they lose one buyer and they'll get another. Right. And, and that's part of the problem of why these businesses to stay afloat have often become uh, money laundering operations. And one of the great financial investigations that brought down the Christian Democratic Party in Italy started with the, the mistress of a politician who felt wronged. And she was in the antiques business, and her he'd been using her business to launder money. Mm -hmm. And that's how it started, was her revealing her financial records and the misuse of her business. 
But Italy has gone after this, mm -hmm. but this has not been done much in England or many other countries uh, where there's a lot of laundering through many, many different kinds of commodities. So, so maybe the answer is if you can shine a light on activities, most people will make adjustments. They won't all make adjustments in changing their business ways, but some will. So maybe that sort of, so it's a hybrid approach, a little bit of a push from the government perhaps, but also a little push from each other. There'll always be outliers. There'll always be people with criminal intent, but maybe you can sort of shorten the amount of illegal activity. Right. You're never going to eliminate it. Right. Right. But you've got to have some examples that you make of this. There was a very high-end um, Indian art dealer who's now uh, who was dealing on Madison Avenue in New York that's now sitting in a jail in India because U.S. Customs uncovered through, through informants uh, the theft of very major art pieces. I want to uh, get you out on this. Dark Commerce... Uh is um, available on Amazon. Get information about it on the track um, website, as we'll make available uh, to all those that are listening to this. But given all that you've been involved in for your your entire career, and and just the, the connecting points that you're you're focused on, what is the one um, recommendation, suggestion, advice for AML professionals? You've dealt with a lot of them. Those that are obviously work within institutions, so sometimes they have, you know controls that they have to follow above them. They can do certain things. But if you're trying to tell somebody who's in the AML industry, maybe only just recently, what sort of advice would you have for those folks? Not so much where should you work, but just in terms of all these different areas that you folks have been able to identify, which to me is fascinating because frankly, when we started doing this 30 plus years ago, it was all about drugs. That was mm -hmm. really it. And now we see the expansion is is phenomenal. Everything from, you know, as we talked about human trafficking, we didn't get a chance to talk about the wildlife trafficking, but you've done some stuff there. And the trees. Yeah. So what advice would you have for folks? I, I so Stop stovepiping your thinking mm. because you're dealing with business people. Uh, these illicit traders are business people and they diversify if they're going to survive. So we don't have many corporations among the most successful in the legitimate world that have only one commodity, or they found ways to combine that commodity with others that broadens their marketplace. And the same is going on with illicit traders. So think flexibly, think about how you would operate as a business person and apply some of the insights that you have from the legitimate world to the illegitimate world, because they, they function and with many of the same rules, I have a whole chapter on where the licit and the illicit economies resemble each other. And that's really, really important to understand. But also that because trade has always reflected the culture and the society of the traders, uh, for example, when I first wrote about this in human trafficking, the Russians always have salt off natural resources and so their human trafficking operates according to what I call a natural resource model. And the Chinese, who've always had millennia of trade all around the world, have integrated networks. So the illicit trade functions the same way as the legitimate trade. And therefore, don't expect it all to look alike. 
think about who's involved in it. That's great. Um, Dr. Shelley, thanks so much for taking the time and sitting down and more importantly for all the work that your center is doing. It's amazing. And hopefully with this sit down, a lot more people will be aware of the great work and reports that you folks have been able to do. Well, thank you for your interest. Well, there you have it. Uh, my conversation with Dr. Shelley. What I found particularly interesting is the connections that she makes through all sorts of activities that we as AML professionals uh, in this year of 2019 uh, are charged with uh, detecting and preventing. Her book, Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future, published by Princeton Press, is available on Amazon. You can also get information from uh, George Mason University. We will have a link on our website as well. I'm going to be writing a book review of this, and I've started to go through the publication and obviously talked to Dr. Shelley and have known her for a number of years. It's not just fascinating reading, but important reading for, again, all of us that need to stay not just on top of things uh, in the AML space, but sort of understand what's coming so that we can work closely with um, senior management, with our regulators, with law enforcement, all those sorts of things. I will highlight a couple of... uh, points uh, both uh, in the book but also in the conversation that we just had, the discussion about Russian cyber issues, talking about um, human trafficking. And as um, Dr. Shelley mentioned, she's written a book about human trafficking, but which is now 10 years old. And what I found interesting is that she said she's, she has her students in her class working to uh, update that book. So I think uh, we're all going to be looking forward to that when it hits... Uh, when it's published and it's out for us to uh, uh, get a copy and read. So again, Dark Commerce, How a New Illicit Economy is Threatening Our Future, from Dr. Shelley. The other uh, point I'd like to make is um, I've been honored to be uh, an an adjunct in the TRAC program that Dr. Shelley has created. And just last semester, uh, the class we taught, and I say we because I was able to use so many experts in the AML space that uh, dedicated their time and came to talk to the students. We talked about uh, terrorism, money laundering, sanctions, all the issues that uh, all of us care about. But um, what I found particularly interesting is a number of the students, and this is graduate level class, a number of the students after the class said they really like to get into this community. And so uh, that that's good news for all of us. We want the next generation as interested in AML as all of us are. And before I close, a uh, couple of other things I want to mention. During this particular week of the interview, uh, there was a hearing held on the House side looking at the challenge of banking marijuana businesses in the House Financial Services Committee. So go on their website and take a look at what witnesses said there. We do know that there will be an AML reform effort both in the House and the Senate here in the United States. So that's something to uh, stay engaged, work through your associations, work through your companies, or even individually talk to folks that are involved in uh, the legislative process because it will impact uh, your roles and responsibilities. And then... um, Later on this month, uh, there'll be a conference down in San Juan, Puerto Rico for the Puerto Rican Bankers Association, which I will be participating in with a number of other um, AML folks. And one of the things that we are going to discuss is human trafficking. Uh, I'm going to do an interview with uh, 
Angel Swift, while I'm down there, Angel is involved in this uh, brand new program, the STAT program, uh, dealing with uh, a platform to help institutions and others share information on human trafficking. So stay close and uh, stay close to this topic. We will have more on our website. So a lot to uh, mull over. Hopefully you've enjoyed uh, Dr. Shelley's outline. I think um, she was so compelling. I'd like to sit down with her again, certainly when the uh, human trafficking book is updated uh, because that I think is pretty pretty important for us to take a look at as well. So uh, once more, this is John Byrne from AML Conversations thanking you for your time and we will see you next time.